Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Welcome to Understanding the Human Condition with our host, Dr. James Flowers. I'm so excited today. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a great day. Thank you for joining us, Deborah. Our uh, VIP guest is Deborah Valentino, and she is the recovery coach for... Yongguat Ji Stai. Yongguat Ji Stai. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so I'd like to introduce you by reading a little bio about you, and then we can get started on some good conversation. I'm just going to interrupt and yeah. say Yongguat Ji uh, Stai. Say it one more time. Yongguat Ji Stai. Oh, there you go. Means our fire, our spirit within each one of us, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's yes. beautiful. Thank you for bringing yeah. that up. Yeah. Um, so Deborah Valentino is an enrolled member of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin and descendant of the Menominee Tribe of Wisconsin, mother of four daughters, one son, and several children born of her heart, grandmother of six, two grandsons, and four granddaughters, married over 44 years to her husband, Kermit Valentino. Deborah has 35 years in recovery from alcohol and drugs and has always promoted healing and supporting others to reconnect with their own fire for a clean and balanced life to find the good road to recovery. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, welcome. <laughs> We've been looking you. forward what, to this. What's the what's the weather where you are right now, by the way? Oi. Um, I think it's about twenty below with the wind chill. Oh my goodness. My goodness. I can't so, even been... remember what that was I know. like. That's right. <laughs> wow. So thank you so much for coming to Zoom with us today. We've been looking forward to this so much. Uh, opioid struggle is a personal passion of mine and, mm -hmm. and, and my life, and, and it's been my work now for about 30 years and my area of expertise. And as opioid struggle or as opiates uh, really related to people who had long-term chronic pain issues and comorbid addiction as well, which is a little bit different, I think, in, in your world. But um, the opioid struggle in Indian country uh, is a topic that needs more attention which is why we're here today. Mm -hmm. Can you share with the audience a little bit about the story you shared with Robin over the weekend about the young man in your class that lost his struggle with the opioids and how that sparked your passion? Well, I, um, I came, I, my husband and I moved back to the reservation when he retired. And so that was about four years ago now. Okay. Um, and my thing was always wanting to get back into the culture. I mean, I did a lot of research on my own living in Chicago um, but I was away from the reservation, the Oneida Reservation. And so when I came back, I put myself in language class and culture and history. And that was a big part of my, I mean, it was every day. Yeah. It's a real commitment. Yeah. And there was a young man that was in our class who basically, oh my gosh, I didn't even think he was that old. Uh, he just looked young. He was just smiling all the time, just a happy person. 
and uh, I had no idea that he was struggling um, with this addiction. Hmm. So um, anyway, what, well, what happened was uh, I didn't see him. He didn't come to class for a few times and uh, found out that he kind of got in a little bit of trouble. And I basically told one of the fellow students that, you know, we all do things and just tell him to come back. And within a week, he OD'd, he Gosh. overdosed. Yeah. And he died. Um, and unfortunately, yes, the person that, you know, found to give him the drugs is now in, is also, you know, sent away. And so it's not a good thing no. either way. You know, you lose a life, the person that's, giving them these things, you know, also loses their life by going to prison. Right. Yeah. Um, it was a friend, right? So that's kind of what sparked it for me, but it also sparked a huge um, concern for the community because this was not the first one. And so basically people said enough is enough. Right. And uh, then generated several meetings in our community um, at different times. And the one I went to um, was, you know, of course here in Oneida. Um, and we were just talking about what can we do. And uh, so that's kind of what sparked me to get interested. Um, my husband and I, of course, did a lot of this work in the Chicago area for the Native American community and brand meetings. And, you know, that's where we sobered up and um, sobered up together yeah. January 5th of 19, what was it, 1986. Wow. Congrats. And, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, so, you're, you're very open about your own uh, struggle uh, and your own recovery. Um, would you mind sharing with the audience a little bit about your own story and, and your sobriety? Um, yeah, I, you know, I guess started at an early age. I mean, not as early as some, yeah. you know, but 16 um, drinking and then dabbling into different drugs. And, you know, basically it was just not a good thing. Um, you know, there is that addiction and alcoholism in my family. So, you know, and I grew up saying, same thing like a lot of people, I'm not going to do that when I get older. Right. Um, and, you know, just didn't happen. So um, basically, you know, yeah, I just started drinking and uh, like I said, it wasn't good. And, you know, I just, my life wasn't manageable, as they say. Yeah. And um, met my husband right after high school. Uh, he, I was 18, he was 21, and, um, you know, we proceeded to, of course, party together, and um, then we started, you know, we started to have children, and, you know, that's the whole thing, you know. We often talked throughout those early years of how do we stop this? Uh -huh. How do we stop this cycle? And as much as we promised you know, we weren't going to drink or we weren't going to drug again or do any of these things. It didn't work out that way. Right. And if it could happen to you, it could happen to anybody. Right. Yep. And I have an older brother who basically was um, in recovery before us, I think about, I'm going to say almost seven years. Uh -huh. And um, I worked for him after high school and he had a basement waterproofing business and I worked for him and my husband actually that's how I met him he came and interviewed for a job there wow and, um, so anyway <laughs> long story short we both you know my brother would often say are you guys ready yet you know are you guys ready so oh, wow. that kind of thing sure um, and after 
both our parents died of either alcoholism related issues um, and three of them on holidays. Um, hmm. My father was killed on Mother's Day. Um, and his father died of alcoholic heart disease on Christmas Eve. Hmm. Um, and his mother passed away on Halloween. Hmm. And, um, and then my mother, um, you know, she committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Although there's, for me anyway, there's speculation with that. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah. doesn't change anything. Um, so it was just those types of things and I just kept, you know, and life was not manageable at all. And I just kept thinking, you know, I'd be on the bus and in Chicago, because at the time we didn't have a car. And I was toting all these kids around, you know, with me on a bus. And, but I would be always praying to myself, like, how do I get out of this? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we create a better life for our kids? Mm-hmm. And uh, when his mother passed away, no, when his dad passed away on Christmas Eve, that was 1985. And I don't know exactly how that all worked, but we buried him. My husband said he wasn't gonna drink anymore. Um, he was pretty much, you know, the whole funeral and everything. Cause we had one in Chicago and then we had to bring him home to Oneida and we had the funeral up here. Mm-hmm. And said we weren't gonna drink anymore. Yeah. Um, New Year's came along, and I think the next day we were drinking, and <laughs> but something happened, and then my, I think, uh, you know, and my brother was a big, you know, support, and he was, took us to our first meeting. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I actually went to that meeting in support of my husband because I was thinking he's the alcoholic. Right. Sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the worst one. No. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Um, that's yeah. kind of how we got started. And when I went to that first meeting, it was, I think we were pretty fortunate. It was um, a meeting in Chicago that was mostly of native elders. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of uh, older people in that meeting mm-hmm. and they were native. And they just were laughing and making us feel comfortable. And oh. when I walked out of that meeting the first time, I said, I need to keep coming. Yeah. Oh. It wasn't for him, it was for me. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to get that right away, that was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I, we also knew early on we had to run our own programs. Sure. Okay. Um, Absolutely. So, because a lot of times, you know, and we joked about it and laughed about it a lot of times because it was like, well, you wake up from drinking and drugging and partying together and looking at each other like, who are you? Right. Right. And couples don't make it. Right. Yeah. We were very fortunate to make it. Yeah, that's an amazing that was 40, story. And that was 44 years. And like I said, unfortunately, he passed away this last October yeah. from the COVID. We so are so sorry. sorry about that. An amazing 44 years, I hope. It sounds like it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. And that's probably what I hold on to. Absolutely. And and the resiliency that, that you have is amazing. Talk to us just a little bit about... Uh, not specifically about the Native American uh, community in general, but maybe, or if you want to, that'd be great, but the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin in substance use disorder, in particular opiate disorder. And uh, is it a, uh, how do you see that? Is it a huge problem in your community? Um, Is it something that do you see as nationwide? Well, it's nationwide. I mean, I believe, you know, it's like not just, Native communities, but it sure. is nationwide, you know, it's it worldwide. Is. Yeah. Um, 
And but the thing with our community is that we SAMHSA. Mm -hmm. um, what did I say? Substance, substance and health abuse. Right. Um, mm -hmm. They basically have had pockets of money for different Native um, tribal nations uh, to kind of help them combat this. Great. And so the tribal action plan here. Um, that's kind of like when we got started again, when I like when I told you earlier about the story about how I got in, in, kind of involved in all of this, um, we would we started to meet when we started to meet with the tribal action plan, behavioral health, <clears throat> um, the OPD, which is the police department here, um, and just interested community members and um, just kind of talking about, you know, what can we do um, first? first thing was to create the awareness uh -huh. um, because when I came like I said four years ago I had no idea how prevalent this was um, on the Oneida Reservation um, and surrounding areas <clears throat> excuse me um, so um, the overdoses that were happening um, you know you come from Chicago and you move here and I live pretty much in like it's my backyards, woods, and you know everything. And Chicago, you hear ambulances and everything all the time, but not used to that here. Sure. And it got to be. I noticed that there was a lot going by the house off and on. Uh -huh. um, sometimes two and three times a day. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it was other issues, uh -huh. but the growing, you know, the growing effects of uh, the drug abuse and the alcohol and different things that were happening was contributing to that. Sure. So. You know, we had to create awareness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that um, we began to do was when we met as a community, first of all, was to talk about what can we do. And one of the things that came up was to have a sacred fire. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. sacred fire was yeah. to create awareness. Yeah. And um, so we did that October of 2017, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that fire ran 24 7 for over 100 days wow and so we had to have um, we had very steady fire keepers um, and the men are usually the fire keepers in um, that aspect um, and then i probably cooked breakfast every morning for them wow. <laughs> um, and then also attended the fires and just we were there just supportive that there was always we always tried to keep like two to four people at the fire at all times. Mm -hmm. um, so that any time somebody would come in who needed help, because it wasn't just to create awareness, it was also if anybody was looking for help, mm -hmm. they could come to that fire, put their tobacco in the fire, say their prayers, um, and you know ask for help. Um, there was also, we had, uh, we had, I don't know, I could not even tell you how many people in those hundred days that came through that were um, looking for help, that were looking to support us uh, with food, firewood, um, in any way that they could. There were people that came because they now were becoming aware, stop and ask, what were we doing there? Uh -huh. um, <laughs> day yeah. in and day out. I mean, even people from all walk, all four directions, you know, the United States. Yeah. We had people from other native communities, I think we even had, and I wasn't there that time, but I think they said a monk came in and even said his prayers. Amazing. At the fire. Yeah. Um, so there was just, 
a tremendous amount of support for what we were doing and and uh, it got hard sometimes but you know we kept it going I can imagine. And that must be part of that avenue of opening up that you talk about a little bit, right? It has to be the right avenue to open up, to be able to take that step into recovery. And that fire kind of provided that avenue. But can you expand on that avenue that you were talking to Robin about a little bit about? Um, it was, uh, let me let me find it real quick. Uh, well, yeah. so the fires, just so that I can understand mm -hmm. and then the audience yep. can understand it. So the audience, uh, the fires are to raise awareness, correct? Well, the sacred fire was, I mean, that's... That's for any you, awareness, right? You can use right? that for anything, any, any ceremonial. Yeah. It means, hey, um, we've got a problem here, right? Yeah. yeah. But mm -hmm. we wanted to create, and other nations were doing the same thing. They yep. wanted to create that awareness in their communities. Hey, we have a problem. And so if they came to the fire, we would explain what it was for and, you know, different things like that. Right. Yeah. So we actually were only going to do it for 30 days. Hmm. But we didn't feel that it created enough awareness. So that's why we kept going. Hmm. Um, and so because we just had like tons of people coming every day just to sit by the fire. Right. And, you know, we had there's different people like there was a couple that would drive by and see us all the time mm. that couple then decided one morning let's stop and see what they're doing because actually um you know they were looking for some help uh -huh. yeah. and they thought well maybe let's see what this is about mm. so it, you know and and this opioid issue and everything this touches not just young people mm -hmm. this touches older people everything all it sure does so when they got by the fire basically they were coming back all the time because they didn't uh, feel the yeah. need to go get anything because they felt the fire was working for them. Yeah. So there was a lot of different stories like that that we had there. You guys That's are amazing. living, breathing, it you know, t uh, billboards for It Takes a Village, right? Yep. I mean. Yes. And people that were in there were people like myself. We're all in recovery. Yeah. Um, you know. All volunteer. All volunteer. Uh, and we've been volunteering for the past why not? I'm going to stay going on four years almost. Um, just because it's, you know, we understand what it is. We sure. wanted to also create that awareness of how do you look at addiction? Um, it's not like you can just, I mean, because a lot of families don't know how to deal with it. You know, because right. it touches, it's not just the addict, it touches the whole family. Oh, yeah. And, you know, people are like, well, why can't you just quit? Right. <laughs> yeah. yep. And it's, you know, it's not that easy. It's just like anything else, you know, it's a disease and it's basically, you know, like, like diabetes. That's um, right. Yeah. You know, you have to get help for it. You have to have, change your lifestyle and you have to do all these things. And there's no shame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about your volunteers for a second. Tell us about your volunteers and what you look for in a volunteer. And, and I know you're very proud of the volunteers that work with you. Well, um, you know, the volunteers that we've been working with, well, my husband was a big part of it. Um, and myself, um, I have two daughters that were also involved and uh, their boyfriends and um, now husband because we did have a couple weddings and uh, nice. you know, at these, at the sober gathering place, it became a place for, you know, social functions too oh, right awesome. like you know we had a couple of weddings um and 
let's see, we had just community members. Mm -hmm. um, so there was myself, Kermit, Francine, Cassandra, Frank, Gina, um, Dana, oh my God, Josiah, um, Anita. I mean, you know, we just, uh, I'm trying to think of, I don't want to, I, I forgot, I'm forgetting one name. <laughs> That's not good. That is okay. Um, They're all important. Yeah. Yes. If but they, they're, you know, I mean, they've all been there and I used to have a schedule, you know, so yep. I'd have to, they'd all have to give me if they were going out of town, if they were doing this or whatever, and I have to create that schedule every week so that somebody was there. We tried mm -hmm. to have to, like I said, two people to four people all the time at the fire. And then when we actually got a space in 2018, um, we tried to do the same thing because if a man comes in, you got to have men there. If a woman mm -hmm. comes in, you got to have women there. Right. Mm -hmm. So we always try to, you know, cover those um, important things as well. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Tell me, tell, share with the audience the story that um, you had shared with me over the weekend about her little girl came home when she was young, and she told, she told her mom, she told Deborah, they called me Indian, mom. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, like, I mean, the whole thing with um, uh, loss of identity, mm -hmm. you know, for Native people. Um, and, there, and I know there's a lot of people who might say, oh, just get over it. You know, this happened a long time ago. Well, yes, these things happened a long time ago, but like the residential schooling um, where children were taken away from six to 16 for yeah. months at a time, you know, and some of them never went home. Um, and to go through all the, um, and I'm just mentioning this because this is kind of what has been leading up to, you know, with our communities of generational trauma. That's yeah. right. And so, um, you know, the, the residential schools, like I said, the um, loss of land, um, and it and it continues, you know, with uh, foster care. Uh -huh. um, you know, so anyway. Um, Can I ask you a quick question? Are you saying that they take children out of the nation to put them in foster care in the general community or? Well, there's the Indian child welfare law that is supposed to be followed. Yeah. Um, that's another thing I kind of was involved with with Chicago. We actually had the state of Illinois where they had to step up in because uh, in Chicago they were not practicing that uh, they were not uh, abiding by that there was no Indian child welfare office there was nobody they were contacting when they take a child that's native they're supposed to contact that tribe or that nation and uh, follow those guidelines sure so uh. we also started that in Chicago and so they still have an office there now good um, but yes, they would take children and they, um, you know, they would be in non-native homes. Sometimes they'd go to another state. Sometimes they'd go to another country wow. um, and never know who they were. Yeah. So the loss of identity is huge. Yeah. Um, for myself, uh, growing up in Chicago, right. um, I was just in a melting pot. And at the same time, there were, you know, Polish and there was, you know, um, black and there was Hispanic and Asian. And I was the only one most uh -huh. of the time. And so it was like, okay, where do I fit in uh -huh. to all of this? So I grew up with a lot of that. And the story with my daughter was the fact that, you know, here I am, you know, like my husband and I now are sober, we're doing what we need to do, you know. Um, 
And my children are, you know, my oldest was probably in second grade maybe. And then the next one started in kindergarten. And I think she was, that was the time she came home. And she was like, mom, they're calling us Indians. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you are Indian. What am I not doing that you don't know? <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, I, I started to, you know, my husband, he, pretty much grew up in the Native community. Um, I didn't really find that community until I was 18. Uh Hmm. Um, And the American Indian Center in Chicago is one of the oldest Indian centers throughout Indian country. Um, And they're still in existence. I really can't even, I'm trying to think of how long, it might be 60 years, I'm not sure right now. Um, They did have to move, but where it was, um, that's how I got involved and started to take my children there and started to reach out to people. And, you know, um, I even sold their own regalia so that they could dance uh, at different powwows and social functions and at the Indian Center when we'd have fundraisers or they'd have their own uh-huh. um, events there. Um, and just getting to know people and doing my own research. Um, I would come back, you know, I knew. Uh, my mother brought us home here once in a while. So, I mean, I knew of, you know, Oneida and Menominee Nation and uh, where it was, but um, I started to do my own research and reach out. And I even reached out and started, like, we, we started another organization in Chicago, um, me and my husband and two other people. And um, I did some classes, just beginning classes with language, just the words. I'm not a fluent speaker. I wish I could be. It's a very hard language. Yeah. <laughs> I'm as hard as Navajo, but it is hard. Yeah, <laughs> sure, um, sure. But, um, you know, and I'm still trying as mm-hmm. old as I am. I'm still trying to pick it up. Um, but that was the thing. When she came home and said that, my thing was, okay, mm-hmm. I need to change this because this cannot be repeated. And, uh, right. You know, mm-hmm. So from learning, I went back to school. I went to a native college in Chicago for a while, and I did learn about all of those things, about the losses uh, that native people, uh, you know, all those things that happened to us way back when, but I did not want to stay there. I got angry at first, but I didn't want to stay there and pass that on to my kids. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to learn about it, to make them strong enough so that they could make better decisions for themselves and look at solutions, not be a victim, and move on and they have a good life uh-huh. so i think we did pretty good yeah that's amazing <laughs> yeah. so what can the audience do to help support your cause because it used to have fundraisers but because of covid you can't do that now right so yeah i mean we we had some help from the oneida nation itself um with small grants. And then we basically really didn't want to tie ourselves you know we we're a grassroots organization um you know, when like these things I've talked about happen, you know, to people, the trust uh, mm-hmm. is a big issue. Yeah. So a lot of people didn't want to get tied into big grants where they told us what to do. We said, we're just going to do what we want to do. So a lot of it uh, was basically local fundraising. Um, mm-hmm. I had ties in Chicago, like I said, so I had good people that donated and gave to us, you know, sent us checks and things like that. Okay. Um, but we did a lot of... Um, you know, just fundraisers. We'd sell um, like food and we'd have raffles and we, 
We had once a year events where we thank the community appreciation day for all the support they gave us, um, you know, and so we just continued like that. We did, you know, I spoke here and there at different places that people wanted me to come tell us who we, who we were and they would give us a donation. Uh, we worked with various groups. Um, and if we participated, sometimes they would divvy up the money for you know, those that participated. So we did, we did a lot of little things like that. And then when COVID hit, we couldn't do it anymore, um, but we did have enough money. And it, the thing is the office, other than paying for um, the utilities and uh, the, the nation gave us the office for, we didn't have to pay any rent. Oh. Um, it was like this huge garage. Yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. um, you know, and it was, it was a good place because it was, big because whoever had it before had the garage for the antique cars uh -huh. so you know it was this um and so we just painted the whole place you know made it homey we wanted to make it relaxing where people could come and just sit and watch tv mm -hmm. have a meal go to nice. a meeting um and over the years like we added uh beadwork and uh, art classes and different things for people to come to Nice. Um, every other Sunday, we had somebody come and speak on their addiction, share their story. So we did a lot of different things. We connected with uh, behavioral health so that if somebody came on a Friday, because, you know, things aren't open past sure. right. the business day and then the weekend. Yeah. Um, and we weren't a facility to be able to house people. But what we would do is we just didn't close. Yep. And we stayed awake yeah. <laughs> um, and we took turns until we could get that person in on a Monday to see somebody. And then, so that's kind of what the initial thing the community was asking for. Yep. Where can people go to, mm -hmm. to get help, to have a meal, um, to just sit. Mm -hmm. We had a pool table. We just, yeah, whatever we thought of, um, place where the guys would say, Hey, let's jump on this you know internet and see what's out there and yeah. you know what what's free you know sure so we got a free pool table and you know one of our guys was an artist as far as like woodwork and doing all this stuff you know mm. he did artwork on the side of the pool table for our nation and stuff like that so Amazing. it's it was a lot of um just commitment uh, personal relationships and just you know for the for what people were committed mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. we, we had that strong, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, passion. Passion, yeah. For yes. what we were doing, for what we were doing. You bet. You know, and speaking so we of- continued, we continued our fires there too, so. Yeah, speaking of fundraising, do you know that uh, for you as a, as a nonprofit, you can walk into any Walmart, you can go to 10 different Walmarts, and walk in with your 501c3 paperwork and tell them what you're doing. And the general manager of that Walmart has the authority to write $1,100 checks uh, to any 501c3 that he wants to, Seriously? he or she wants to. And they can do it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and you can do it up to twice a year. So, and nobody, they don't advertise it, they don't talk about it. Uh, but you can go to a general manager at a Walmart and ask for $1,100 donation huh. for your 501c3. And if he likes you or she likes you, which they will, um, they'll give you $1,100 on the spot. 
So oh, just keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I will. Awesome. I mean, you know, like I said, we just had to pay the utilities and things like that. So that's pretty much, you know, yep. we covered that most of the time. And then we still yep. had enough money to carry us through kind of the whole COVID thing up until I closed the office December. Well, we closed, mm. the, yep. we closed the office December 31st. Um, and so we still have enough to keep the account open. And then we were just saying, we're just going to continue once things happen, we'll just continue to start fundraisers. And our initial goal now is to continue to work with behavioral health. Um, we have another group called Wise Women here who do a lot of things for homeless and different people. Um, and so we're just going to fundraise and what we're going to do because we don't have a space and don't have those added things to pay for, we're just going to decide as a group who do we want this to go to? Right. Who's dealing right. with addiction? Is be you know like behavioral health? They're looking to take over a spot uh -huh. to somewhat have what we had. Right. Um, so they're going to have a sober gathering place or some place for people to to connect with and go. Um, okay. Presently, we still do Friday night fires. Yeah. And we oh, cool. still we continued that. We did stop for a little bit, but because it's outside and it's around the fire, we didn't have a lot of people coming. Hmm. So we were pretty safe, masking, you know, and, and then things like that. So right, and we continue right. we continue to do that today. Yet, yeah, absolutely. Could you give us a couple of, uh, or even one success story of someone that's been touched by your work in the community uh, hmm. that has turned out to be a success? I'm sure you have many, 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 but successes. And the successes can be um, because as recovery coaches, because we took recovery coach training and uh, most of us. And um, one of the things I think that it teaches you is that we don't tell them what they recover from. Right. Um, so if they think that their drinking ain't that bad, but as long as they stay away from heroin or, you know, different things like that, um, synthetic opioids mm -hmm. and whatever, then, you know, we just try to get them to where they need to be. And then right. if they think about the other later, they think about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but we did have, you know, I mean, we, I feel like we've had quite a few successes. One that always um, comes to mind is a um, young lady. And um, she pretty much started off, you know, coming early on up by the fire that we had for 100 days. And she decided she wanted to go back to school. So she went back to school and she decided she was going to go back for nursing. Wow. And she started taking classes and she was always coming up there and she let us know, well, I got to go home this time because I got to work on this, you know, but she always wanted to be around the fire. Well, one day she came in, she says, I'm so nervous. I got to do a presentation in my class. And so my husband was sitting there and he says, well, do it. <laughs> and so we're in this teepee up on a hill and, you know, around a fire and she had it in her car. So she goes and gets it and she displays it up there and she proceeded to do her presentation and she did it to, I think some other people showed up. So she did it like two or three times and she was ready to do it at school. Wow. Aww. That's amazing. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, so there's, you know, there's just different things like that. You, you know. bet. Is there anything else you would like to tell us yeah. about the work that you do and that you'd like the audience to know? Oh, <laughs> um, basically, I guess uh, what I would like people to understand is just, you know, um, oh, my gosh, you just kind of threw me with that question. I know. Um, but 
I guess just really understanding. There's a lot of things I think that, um, in my perspective, coming from a native, you know, as a native person, um, there's a lot of things uh, that native people have went through. Yeah. And you know, I think it's important for you to, you know, like maybe start doing your own little research and coming up with those things. Because when I, if you look at all of, you know, because I was just kind of looking at some of the things, um, you know, throughout my lifetime and everything, and just looking at the different things that happened. Like if you would Google massacres, mm -hmm. you know, what happened? There's over two to three hundred. Yeah. You know, so. All these things that have led up, that I talked about for trauma for Native right. people, um, and we are still, still in some of that. Yeah, absolutely. The Indian child, Indian child welfare stuff is still happening. Yeah. Um, but you know, to really just kind of take some time, do a little research. I love when shows actually do and listen to what we have to say. Yeah. I wish talk show hosts would do that a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And not just with the bad stuff, with the good stuff. Sure. But um, our new president yeah. mentioned the Indian community in his inauguration, right? In the inauguration, I forgot who the gentleman was um, that was speaking. Yeah. It wasn't the president, but oh, it was somebody okay. else. And he actually said native people. He Love did. That. Yeah. Native people. You know, yeah. yeah. Cool. I remember I, that day. I noticed that that day. Yeah. Well, I was busy interviewing someone, and yeah. <laughs> you got to watch it. I didn't. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all yeah. right. You're the yeah. boss. So when well, you think about First Nations people, you know, just do some research, or even yeah. go to a nation, talk to somebody, you know, and um, you know, we're not, we're not, all those stereotypes. Yeah, we're cu right. curious. Yeah, and from a, uh, I don't even know what perspective this is. But I noticed that you don't refer to yourself as a Native American. Well, I mean, it depends on who you speak to. Uh -huh. It could be Native American. It could be, you know, indigenous woman. Okay. Um, you know, um, I mean, I'm learning different things all the time about myself. Yeah. You know? So basically, as uh, um, yeah. I guess, I just look at myself as, you know, a proud Native you know, well, you say Native American, yeah. uh, um, but I just kind of look at myself as, uh, you know, a woman, uh, yep. you know, Haudenosaunee, um, and basically, you know, Ungwehu, uh -huh. um, that's how we say, and and I, I just want to be proud of that. Yeah, awesome. well, And I want my well. girls to understand that they need to be proud of that. And um, like I said, I think we, my husband and I have done a good job. They're very strong women. There's been a lot of strong women in my family, and yes, you know, regardless of all of the things that we went through, and you know, just, I just want to pass that on, and I have to say, my grandchildren are doing exceptional. That's awesome. That's amazing. Well, Thank again, you. you're an amazing woman. You are. We have run over time, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and we could talk for days with you. You're just really great to talk to, you, and thank you for doing this with us. This is really an important cause. Thank you and for having me. So question, before we hop off here, how can someone reach you? Do you want to give us an email, a phone number, an address? How can someone? And if someone wants to make a donation? Yeah. Um, you could probably email us um, and email it to gathersober at gmail.com. 
to gather. Um, I can't so give I... you the number because we don't have the number there anymore. Yeah. But I, yeah. I still have the, you know, the email on my computer. Okay. It's, together so It's basically okay. handled together. by me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So, yeah. Thank so you. It's gathersober at gmail.com because I'm the recovery coach. I was also the um, treasurer for the group. Wonderful. And you're on Facebook? Yes. And you're pretty active on it, too, I noticed. Yes. Um, we also have Yungwajistai. If you type in Yungwajistai, yeah. and I could tell you how to spell that if you needed to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, you know, our fire, our spirit within each one of us. And if you type that in, um, you should probably get to our page. Um, and I usually, Good. I think that's the other thing that has kept me going through all of this, too. You know, it's like for a yeah. while I kind of was off um, after my husband, but... You know, that's the important thing. Yeah. You got to stay connected. You got to keep busy. You got to yeah. keep doing things when we go through these types of things. And that's mm -hmm. basically what has pulled me through. So I'm on there just about every day, putting some kind of comment or some kind of story or some kind of picture or something relating to let's let's stay in recovery. And or yeah. you need well, you're an inspiration. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for what you do every day for so many people. And it's great to meet you, and we yeah. hope to have another conversation. That'd be awesome. And Dr. Flowers, okay. if they want to reach you, uh, uh, how do they reach? Go to our uh, website, and it's uh, jflowershealth.com. Perfect. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Talk have a great to you week. soon. All right. All thank you. Best. Bye. Deborah. All right. Bye-bye.